morning, everybody. <clears throat> Go ahead and find your seats. I'm yelling at you. Uh, find your seats and welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Ray. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And um, we're glad to have you today. So before we get started, just want to say thanks to all of those who came to our, uh, our Young Disciples on Friday. Thank you to the Macias for hosting it at your home. Appreciate that. And then uh, I think uh, Miss Chloe, happy birthday. Today's your birthday, right? It is, all right. I don't know how that got out to me, but it did. <laughs> but anyways, uh, thank you all for that. Uh, but if you would, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Psalms. I mean, not Psalms. Woo. I was reverting to my old passage. Hebrews, okay? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. I'll give you a moment. And then uh, if you would, please stand as you find it. And we will read God's Word and see what He has for us today. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 through 18. <clears throat> All right. And God's Word says, But we do see Him who, ha- <clears throat> who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Amen, right? All right. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children from God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death his might render, <clears throat> through death he might render powerless him who uh, had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered, he is able to come to help those who are tempted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you today, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that as we're gathered here today, we know, Lord, that our worship is stained with sin and is not worthy of you. But because we have Christ the mediator, Lord, our our worship can now be made worthy to you as Christ intercedes for us, Lord. And we thank you for that. God, I just thank you that uh, what you've done on the cross for us, Lord, that you sent your Son, that you guys... uh, the Holy Trinity, planned before everything was created uh, to send your Son down, the plan of redemption, to die in our place. Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray today that our hearts and our ears, Lord, are open to listen to your word be saying, preached, and uh, the fellowship of the believers, Lord. Um, as we're gathered here today, that our love is strong and that uh, we are, our fellowship is sincere. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen. All right. You may be seated. that. We have your word, your truth to guide us in a world that seems confusing and seems chaotic, and you bring peace to the storms of life, and we pray 
for your peace to infuse us, Father, that you would just grow in us the knowledge of your truth so that we can navigate our way through this world, that we cannot be of it, that we have to walk in it, but that we are called your children and help us to live as your children, representatives of Christ. May the fruit of your Spirit manifest in us that we would be different than the outside world and that those looking from the outside in would see you in us and that would be a testimony to the salvation that you have made and that we would be able to share the gospel with them. And I pray, Father, for those who may not have experienced just a saving relationship with you through Jesus Christ, your Son, that today that you would speak to them through your holy scriptures. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. If you don't have your Bibles, I think we have some pew Bibles available for you. We have some in the back. If you grab one, maybe you have a phone app. Um, But please turn with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1 is where we find ourselves in our study this morning. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the style of our teaching here at Carlsbad Bible Church, uh, we teach in an expository manner, which means that we pick a book of the Bible and we go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We don't skip over confusing or hard parts or what might appear to be that way, but we want to see all that God has for us and that He has prepared for us through His Word, and we believe His Word is authoritative. And another reason why we want to take our time with God's Word and really study it deeply and in context. So I'm going to back up a couple of verses into the teaching that I brought last week to verse 10 of Mark chapter 1, and then we'll read through verse 13. And the teaching this morning will be more confined to verses 12 and 13, but let's start with verse 10 for context's sake. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I just want to give you a word of caution before I begin here this morning. Um, Like I mentioned, we do do an expository type of teaching, but this message this morning is going to kind of go in a topical tangent. And when we teach topically on a particular topic, this, this topic this morning, I'm going to tell you, is about temptations and our own desires compared to Christ's temptation and the, the tempter who was tempting with the desires that we all possess. And so that is going to be more or less the topic this morning, but like the noble-minded Bereans that we find in Acts chapter 17, they didn't just take the word that they heard from man's lips, but they grounded it in the truth of Scripture. And so I want to challenge you and encourage you to do the same thing, that you ground this to God's truth and look at it in context, because there may be things that I've inserted in my notes here that could be incorrect, and I do not want to mislead anyone. So please be Bereans with this. Carefully consider and test the things that I say with Scripture. So just real quickly, the recap here, going back to verse 10 and why I included this morning, is Jesus has just been baptized 
by John the Baptist, who John the Baptist was the herald to Jesus, announcing, making the way for the way with a capital W, that being Jesus Christ, and the initiation of his earthly ministry. And one of the reasons that he was baptized is this was a demonstration of Jesus Christ's identification with us in our human bodies, that he had come fully God to be fully human in the flesh, and it was an identification with us. Jesus Christ had no sin to forgive. He had no sin to repent of, but rather it was just showing us that he was fully man and he was willing to undertake this identification process with us by being baptized. And the other thing that we see in here is God divinely sanctioning Christ's earthly ministry that this was the launch into Jesus Christ's uh, earthly ministry, His teachings, everything that He would say, everything that we do, He would do is being inaugurated really here in this moment. And then immediately after this, Jesus is led by the Spirit, the Spirit who had descended on Him like a dove, the, the third person of the Trinity. Now the Spirit is moving Jesus into the wilderness where He will be tempted by the adversary who is called out here, that is Satan, that is the devil. He goes by a few different titles, but this is Satan that is going to be tempting Jesus as he is moved into the wilderness to this time of testing by the Spirit. And you might think a lot is missing in this passage of Mark about the temptation story of Jesus Christ. And granted, Mark does leave out a lot of this, Um, But he gives us just enough. Remember back to our study of the introduction of Mark, where Mark focuses more on the activity of Jesus rather than the teachings of Jesus. That doesn't really get into a lot of detail about the words of Christ, but what he did. And so when when Mark writes, immediately the Spirit is moving in him to the wilderness, letting us know there that he's going to be tempted, but doesn't go into a lot of the details that we'll look at here in just a moment in the book of Matthew. But whether we read it from Mark or Matthew or Luke, I I don't know that John actually has this particular part uh, in his writings, but no matter where we read it from, we know that Jesus underwent a test immediately after his baptism. He was to be tempted. And Jesus, as God in the flesh, was subjected to the same limitations that we are physically. And I think sometimes I lose sight of that. We focus more on the deity of Christ. Well, that was 100% true of Christ. It was also true that He was basically like us in His human limitations. Paul tells us that Jesus humbled Himself and took on the likeness of us. If you want to turn there to Philippians chapter 2, we did a deep study of Philippians. That was one of the books that we taught through a few months back. But let's remind ourselves... Here in Philippians 2, and I'm going to start in verse 5, what Paul writes of Christ coming in the flesh, he says, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men.'" That Christ did not give up His deity in any way. He was still in the form of God, the very essence of God and nature of God, being God Himself, but He subtracted from Himself by addition, that He didn't remove His deity in order to become human, but He rather 
emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. He took on, he added to himself the humanity, the flesh that we um, all possess. And it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I think the better translation of that word is that he did not exploit his deity to use to his advantage, though he could have as God. He could have performed all the miracles for, on his behalf, but he didn't perform a single one on his behalf. He could have cured his own sicknesses and diseases. He could have not been hungry. He could have exploited that deity, but yet he did not. He took on everything that, that we experience, and including the temptations that we go through. We know Jesus, he got tired. Right? We see that illustrated very clearly in the Scriptures. He got hungry. We see that as well. Human limitations. He's self-limited, becoming like us. I'm sure he received scratches and bruises and mosquito bites and probably maybe had headaches and was subject to, to sickness. His body was susceptible to the same things that we are susceptible to. And we need to understand this as we think and consider how Christ was tempted and what he was tempted with by our adversary. His temptation shows us that though he was in the flesh, he would not give in to its desires. He was fully submitted to the will of his Father. When Christ was readying himself to bear the weight of mankind's sin, in that, that deep moment of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to the Father. We find that in Luke chapter 22. But in that prayer, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was tempted by a lot of things by the enemy as in the wilderness, but I would say that this is the most extreme form of the temptation that he could have faced, and that was taking on the sin of mankind and enduring the wrath of his Father upon the cross. And yet, even there, he would say, not my will, Father, not what this, this outward flesh tent that I'm wearing right now would want, but I want what your will is for me. But his desire was to be obedient to the Father's will. Because he was fully man while at the same time being fully God, he could accomplish what we could not. And the writer of Hebrews, I think, captures this well for us, the purpose of Christ and what he would do when he came in the form of man. And that's why we read this morning at the opening of the service, Ray took us to Hebrews chapter 2, and so I want to take us there again. Um, he read from 9 through 18, so we've already kind of covered that this morning, but let me just point out a couple of the specifics that we find here of Christ and being deity, taking on the form of man. In Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 15, verses 14 through 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So in his becoming man, the writer here says he partook of the same things, the same things, the hunger, the weariness, the maybe the 
the things that scratches and bruises and those things that he would share in those with us and partake of. And then in verses 17 through 18, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus, while being subjected to all the temptations that we are, he would show himself perfect in overcoming every one of the temptations that would show and demonstrate that he had the same quality of holiness as that of the Father, that he himself was God, the standard that he would need to prove his deity, destroying the one who has the power of death, the the devil himself. And he would also show himself merciful and faithful as the high priest in service to God to atone for our sins, not just a one-time atonement requiring another sacrifice, but a once-and-for-all sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God in Jesus Christ. You turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He would be able to sympathize with us. The Word became flesh, and He subjected Himself to the things that we experience, our weaknesses, our infirmities. And thus, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. That's our passage from Mark. Matthew and Luke's account tells us what he was tempted with. Mark doesn't really expand on that. We know who he was tempted by, right? One thing we can be sure about is that the temptations are the trappings of the enemy, they do not come from God. When we read here in a moment, Matthew verse three, Matthew 4, 3, Satan is described as the tempter. That is the thing that he does. Verse 13, in our reading of Mark, says Jesus was being tempted by Satan. It wasn't a short duration either. It wasn't just we're driving down the highway and we're tempted to turn into McDonald's for a heart fudge Sunday, and we drive on and we think, oh yeah, man, I overcame that temptation. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, and he was fasting. And so his body was hunger, hungering. He was weakened in his flesh. You know how it is when you go a day or two without eating. Imagine 40 days of that, and then to have this full-on confrontation with the enemy, with every temptation that he can throw at you. That is what Jesus was having to endure in the wilderness, in his flesh. The enemy was now ready to launch his offensive, maybe thinking, I've got him right where I want him. And now he is going to go on the attack. And our adversary understands our desires and how strong they can be. So all he has to do is play to those desires. The temptations that he uses, the trappings that he uses are are designed to cater to the desires that we have in our flesh. 
His temptations are everywhere, and if we do not stay rooted in Christ and the knowledge of His Word, we are going to be easily seduced. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, illustrates, I think, very well this progression of desires when they give in to the temptation, what happens to us. James 1 verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We've already covered that. It's the enemy that tempts. God does not tempt. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. So the enemy tempting to the desires that we have, and then as soon as he gets us, that we're almost like impregnated with sin. That is kind of the way James illustrates that here. Because when desire has conceived, that conception of sin, then when it is fully grown, that it's developing, then it brings forth death. That's what sin does to us, and it attracts us. We may try and blame Satan for causing us to sin, but all he does is he sets the trap. We are the ones by our own desires that give in to the cravings of the flesh. And even though we may desire to do good, we are all tempted. No one of us is above it. You know, even someone like the Apostle Paul, we might hold him to a very high standard, you know, Peter and Timothy and those others that we find, but they would admit that they too are human and subject to temptations and even prone to falling into the temptations. And having stumbled themselves, Paul writes in Romans seven twenty two, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And in Scripture, we have a fairly clear formula for how the enemy tempts those desires that we all have. Seems simple. But the enemy has been at this for a while, and he is a master at setting his traps for us so that we will fall into our desires if we are not careful and we are not rooted in Christ and His Word. But turn to 1 John with me, chapter 2. Some of you may already know where I'm going with this, but chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 of 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, there's number one, and the desires of the eyes, two, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." There's, there's a system that is laid out here for us. These are our desires. They can be grouped in this category of three. And John describes these as the things that the enemy will tempt us with. That This is what the enemy is appealing to, the desires within us. He tries these tactics, though, with our Lord, and his attempt is in vain, but he is yet still trying to tempt Jesus to cause the Holy One to sin. If, if he could just get Jesus 
to stumble into sin, then he's just totally destroyed the plan, right? The plan that was laid out from the beginning, from eternity's past. Now I'm going to draw from Matthew's account. So turn with me to chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, because I have a much more detailed, written out uh, illustration of the temptations that Christ faced. Having fasted for 40 days, very weak in his flesh, Matthew starts out, verse 1, chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So he, Jesus passing the test, enduring, having the strength, even though very weakened in his flesh, to overcome all the temptations that the enemy would throw his way. And the first temptation... If we come back and thinking about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life, as 1 John lists them in chapter 2, the first temptation that Christ faced concerns the desires of the flesh, right? Look at it in verses 3 through 4, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then Jesus answered him, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God that he was weakened, he was very hungry, 40 days without food, that is the desire of a flesh to, to feed itself, to eat, and Satan's, go ahead, feed yourself, and he did not. In fact, he countered the devil's attempt to cause him to sin, and he replies with Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3 here. So he's using Jesus is using his own words, really, because he's written these from the, the time that, you know, man started writing the Old Testament, but he's using this to counter everything that the enemy tempts us with. And then the second temptation concerns that pride of life, right? That's in verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the enemy, in trying to tempt Jesus, actually uses Scripture in this instance himself. Don't think that he doesn't know some Scripture. He's going to twist it and take it out of context every time. But he is actually quoting Psalm 91, 11 through 12. But then Jesus comes right back at him. The devil 
was not going to tempt him, and he states, again, as it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. So that pride of life, wanting to preserve your life, is the temptation that Jesus overcame. And the third one is the temptation that concerns the desires of the eyes. And Jesus passed that one too. Satan took him up on the high hill, right? He showed him all the kingdom. And he said, like, you can have this right now. Isn't that something that just tempts us to no end, that we are in a society that's instant gratification? We don't want to wait for anything. So Jesus could have bypassed all the sufferings and the cross, and he could have made his way right into the kingship if only he would bow the knee to Satan. Just take that instant path to it. But there was a consequence. He had to bow the knee to Satan. And Jesus comes back at him, and it seems very strong here. It's actually written with exclamation points in the ESV translation. And again, using Scripture, Deuteronomy 6, 6.13, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus schools the adversary with His own word. And then the temptations are over with. Now He comes, and He's ministered to by the angels. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, accomplished what none of us could in our weakened state. When we think that we're the most weakened, we've never come to the point where we were weakened to the degree that Jesus was, and yet He still was able to overcome because He was God in the flesh. He had to be the sinless one, the perfect Lamb of God who John the Baptist says would take away the sins of the world, that's what he says in John 1.19, so that it would prove that he was going to be the final atonement for mankind's sins. And he overcame temptation, and he proved himself worthy as the Lamb of God, providing the way of redemption for you and for me. Our works, they're not going to buy it. Just a list of good behaviors that we may have gone through for the week, and say, hey, God, look at this list, but then there's another list that we may not want to mention, and that's the things that we didn't do. The, we didn't achieve the perfect standard of His holiness. You know, we miss the mark, so our works cannot buy it. We cannot get in by the salvation of someone else. If Jody is saved and my daughter is saved, that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm riding in on their coattails. It is a responsibility of our own. It is a personal salvation. We have to enter through the perfect one, and that is Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, the perfect Lamb of God, saved by God's grace, Jesus Christ being that perfect gift of grace to us. Now, this doesn't mean that we make excuses for when we sin or that we presume on God's grace as a license to sin. We might hear... Some people say, well, you know, I'm just going to sin anyway, so why not just indulge? I I made a profession of faith years ago, seven years old. I remember the pastor, he wrote my name on a card. I mean, that, that was guaranteeing me entrance into heaven, right? No. If you have not experienced a changed heart, if the disposition towards your sin is the same that it was before you profess faith, then that's not a saving faith. You, you should be hostile towards your sin. Your, your sin should sicken you. It should convict you when you stumble into sin. 
you have not truly been grieved by your sin if you are just continually walking in the pattern of that habitual sin, the things that held you in bondage, and then you profess faith in Christ, and it still looks like you're held in bondage, were you truly saved? And I know that God has to speak to the heart. He has to convict there. But we need to consider this. There should be a clear distaste for sin in your life. Your appetites, your desires are not the same when God's Spirit is inside of you. When He saves us, He gives us a new heart, and He puts Himself within us by the presence of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So when you do sin, then you are moved by conviction to quickly confess that sin before God and repent of it and turn towards God in faith and asking for help and strength. The temptation itself is not sinful. It becomes sin when we allow the temptation to become an action. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an outward act, like an action of me hitting the pulpit here. It can be an action of the mind for it to take root within the heart. Food is a tempting thing for many of us. It is a natural desire of us. It's not bad to want food to feed our bodies, to sustain us, and and to strengthen our human bodies. That's necessary. But when the overindulgence occurs, it can manifest itself in different problems. We can can see those outwardly manifested. It has taken action within you because you've given in too often to the sin of, of gluttony, perhaps. The innate desire to procreate the sexual desires that we have, when yielded to God and they're directed towards the one He has given us in that covenant relationship with our spouse, then it is something good. It is something that is blessed by Him. When the desire stays within the confines that God has placed around it, but when we exploit that and we're just bombarded by it in this world, the temptations to sexual sins... That's when it becomes sin for us, when we take the desires outside of the God, even God-ordained boundaries that He has placed around us. There's a whole slew of other things, covetousness, pride and greed, um, envy. All of these are the sins in the heart that may not manifest outwardly like these other sins do, but that doesn't make them any less a violation to God's holy standard. When we give into temptation to entertain these thoughts, they take root in our hearts. And Jesus says they defile us. We become defiled from within. When we yield to temptation, we replace the fruit of the Spirit to the works of the flesh. And many times, what was first entertained as a thought then becomes action for us. When that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death, right? That progression of sin in us. Ungoverned by God, our will to follow after our own desires can manifest in all kinds of depravity and corruption. We spiral downhill towards that death when sin is fully grown. In Romans 1, Paul Starts there, I think, in about verse 18, and describing that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them. And then later on, down in that same uh, 
passage of Scripture there, it talks about them exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And he talks about them then being given over to the lusts of their flesh, to the impurities and the defiling of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. God gave them over to their desires. When we are that lost in our sin, walking in that pattern of sin, I don't know when that time comes where God then gives you over to it. God knows that. And it's what is often called the wrath of His abandonment. Sometimes we think of the wrath of God as being like this heavy hand that comes down and just smacks us upside the head or, or squashes us like a bug. He could certainly do that. But what is it when God takes His hand off of us and gives us over to our sin? Something that really hits kind of hard when you, you think about this. So, there are many temptations that we sadly fall into because our flesh is naturally weak, but we have a God who will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, that He will provide a way out for us. We need to look to Him. We need to look to His Word. He provides it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. God, by His presence within us, by the Holy Spirit, enables us to be victorious when we choose the way of escape that He provides. There is a way of deliverance, is what the Scripture says, that He provides from temptation. And for that, we should be so grateful that we have been provided a way. We can learn from Jesus' response here in the wilderness that the most effective way to respond to these common temptations is with what? With the Scripture, with God's Word. In our society, we are so bombarded with temptations and I know it was no different, you know, when in Paul's day when he would walk into a city like Corinth, and that's where the term Corinthianized came up. There was all kinds of sexual depravity going on there, but we need to know the Word of God. We need to know it well. Jesus would come and, and attack the enemy with His own Word, the Word of truth, the Scriptures, <clears throat> because all of these temptations have behind them the, the desires that are in, in us, those three desires that we talked about, the eyes, the flesh, and pride of life. And the only way we can combat these temptations is by continually immersing ourselves in the Word of God to grow more in our knowledge of God's truth. And that doesn't happen when four, six hours of our day, and I may be exaggerating here, is spent looking at our phones, watching TikTok videos, you know, Looking at Facebook, and I'm not saying that there's not a time where you can't do that, but when we compare it to the amount of time that we spend in God's Word, I'm, I'm convicted by this as I consider this. Immersing ourselves in God's Word, putting it into our minds, memorizing His Word, it's going to serve you well in the battle. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes that armor 
the armor of God that we must stand firm in because it's a spiritual battle that we're engaged in. It's not a battle of flesh and blood, but it's with the, the evil principalities that are in the, in the darkness that we don't see, but it's in the spiritual realm. We're engaged in this battle, and in the armor that he describes, they're all protective except for one. One is an offensive weapon, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that is how Jesus attacks the enemy, is with God's Word. In our hands, we can use it to be victorious over the temptations that we face. And of course, another defense against giving in to temptation is just to flee at the first suggestion of it, right? There's a young man that is described by Saul, Solomon, in the Scriptures, um, there in Proverbs chapter 7. You know, it's written as wisdom to his sons, that if he had anything to give to him, he wants to infuse this wisdom on them. That's why he's, he talks about this at the first of this chapter 7, that they need to bind these truths around their neck. I mean, we think about that being the Word of God, that's putting it to memory, using it to counter the offensive. But in Proverbs chapter 7, Saul, Solomon is looking out his window and he sees this simple young man, this foolish man that really does not care about wisdom. And this is what he is led into. Proverbs 7, verse 6 through 9. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night, and darkness. When I read that, I think about, what if that's me? If, if I'm being described as a simple young man here, what would make me wise? And the first thing I have to ask myself is, what was I doing on her corner in the first place? And I think that means that we should not be putting ourselves where temptation is. If we can at all help it, that's the first step, is just avoiding it altogether. But then, if we're already headed down that street, maybe that light bulb's like, why am I doing that? Let me turn around, I'm going to hightail it out of here because I know what this temptation is capable of and I know my desires. So it has to come with a good understanding. We cannot be foolish in this battle. We can just not rest on our morals and think that we're coasting along and we're good to go. We need to ever be ready with God's Word and maturity in His Word. We have a comparison of this. Joseph Found in Genesis chapter 39, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the story here. Many of you know it. Potiphar's wife came. She wanted to have relations with him. She wanted to share her marriage bed with Joseph. And although tempted to sin sexually, Joseph did not give in to it, but he used the physical legs that God had given him, and he hightailed it out of there. He turned and he ran from it. To rather than stay in a potentially dangerous situation, maybe to try to... Um, maybe talk yourself out of it, maybe to reason or just to justify or explain it away and say how it could actually be a good thing. We actually do that with our sins sometimes. I mean, I find my own self kind of going down those paths. But rather than stay there and weaken his resolve, Joseph took off. And we should take off if we have the opportunity to. The temptation was not sin for Joseph because he dealt with it in a God-honoring way. We honor God in our fleeing from these temptations or not even putting ourselves in a place where we will be tempted. 
It could have easily become sin for Joseph had he stayed around and tried to overcome the temptation in his own strength. Now, Jesus, of course, is our ultimate example of the one who overcame temptation and sin. And the inauguration of His earthly ministry began with the Father's divine sanctioning of His work and His life there at His baptism. But then we see immediately He was led into that wilderness. So let no one tell you that when you are saved, maybe you have that mountaintop moment and you expect that to last forever, that God has saved you, He's made you new that now you're going to be immune to the, sim- the temptations, you're no longer going to have those desires, that is certainly not the case. In fact, the enemy will probably attack even stronger. But we no longer look to ourselves and our own ability, our own strength as a source to help us overcome because in, it, in our own strength we are not. But we look to the all-sufficient strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who took on flesh, who experienced everything that we experienced, yet would overcome temptation and ultimately sin and the grave. And that is the gospel. At the end of Jesus' temptation, the angels, they came and they ministered to Him. The angels came and ministered to Him after His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was not forsaken after He had endured the test, but He was cared for. He was loved. And he experienced the strengthening needed for the ministry ahead, the strengthening needed for the cross. If we have a relationship with God through Christ, we are never left alone in this battle. He equips us, he enables us by the presence of himself within us by the Holy Spirit, that we are enjoined with the triune Godhead. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, in John 14, He promises we wouldn't be alone, that He would be with us, but He would also be in us. And that is the truth for every believer, that we have enabling, we have the strengthening for the battle, we have the equipping to help us overcome, and we also have the conviction brought on our souls when we do stumble into sin, and then we can confess, we can be confronted, and we can come to agreement with God about our sin. And for any of us here, if we have not come to that moment where God has just full-on confronted us with our sin and that we realize we're sinners in need of a Savior, and maybe that would be today that you say, God, I know I've sinned against you. I deserve your wrath, but I know that your son Jesus Christ, he took all that sin off of me. He shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins so that I could be restored into a right relationship with you, a relationship of peace. And I want you to save me, God. Cry out for His mercy. He will not turn a deaf ear to you when you cry out for Him in recognition of all that you've done. You can't do it yourself. You can't save yourself. Only He is the one who saves. And He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to restore us to a relationship with Himself and to promise us an eternal inheritance in eternity with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us your word and that we can look to Jesus who is the author, the perfecter of our faith, that he showed us the way, that he overcame every temptation that the enemy brought to him, that he confronted and that he overcame by your word. We know that it is provided to us today that we can use it as a weapon of truth, 
when we walk in this world and we are exposed to the temptations, the, the enemy trapping us or attempting to trap us by our desires, that you would take the desire to act in sin and you would replace it with the desire that you have to please the Father, that we'd show you our love through our obedience to your word and our willingness to submit and to seek all that you have for us, even if it's through sufferings and trials that we know we're promised by the Scripture we'll have to endure, but what awaits us is so much more. And while we're here and we're serving you, God, we have your presence with us, and we experience that overcoming peace and joy that sustains us in this walk with you, that gives us a life, life here to overcome and life eternal with you. We thank you for that. Thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.